This special history episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the William M. Wood Foundation. Welcome to the Proceedings History Edition Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, joined by my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. Still uh, in deep shelter at our various work-from-home locations, but as you've said, it's not business as usual, but the Naval Institute is open for business. Yeah, we definitely are, and uh, we're just putting the, the finishing touches on the next issue of Naval History Magazine, which will go to the presses early next week. Uh, we, we had a big audible change uh, just yesterday. We were that, that issue of the magazine, the June issue, was going to be focused on uh, the Greyhound movie with starring Tom Hanks. And Sony Pictures has pulled that one back from release. Well, they've pulled their entire their entire slate for the year back, not just Greyhound. Oh, you know, I know they pulled yeah. everything back, as all all you know movie companies have. Uh, so we we did a quick switch and we we added some new uh, content, and then we'll just hold that Greyhound package until. Later in the year, whenever Sony Pictures does release Greyhound, we got that all ready to go. So uh, kudos to my team to, for being really flexible and, and anticipating that that might come. And then it did. Um, and uh, now we're on to the May issue of, uh, of Proceedings Magazine. And in the meantime, we're producing a lot of great online content. The news team is on what's happening in the Navy and Marine Corps Coast Guard with uh, the coronavirus and we've got a number of great commentaries on proceedings online of how people uh, across the force are reacting to coronavirus, including a great piece by our friend Holly Harrison, Coast Guard captain, who's the commanding officer of the Coast Guard cutter Kimball out in Oahu. Uh, she wrote a piece we published yesterday about how the Kimball is balancing operational readiness and training with also the social distancing requirements now. Uh, in the state of Hawaii and, and across the nation for prevention prevention of the virus spread. So lots going on, definitely. All right. So today we're talking about history, and uh, we've got a great bunch of folks on the phone with us. Yeah, we do. So in the April issue of Naval History Magazine, starting on page 23, there's an article called Conspicuous Gallantry Under Fire. Is written by Captain Michael Slattery, U.S. Navy retired, a Navy SEAL who served in Vietnam, the SEAL Team One. It's about a an amazing story uh, that happened uh, down in in southern Vietnam, almost at the the very tip of the Kamau Peninsula, in January 1971, when a group of SEALs went in uh, essentially to um, uh, to deal with some Viet Cong uh, just after part of their crew had been shot at the previous day. Uh, so joining us today from Virginia Beach, Virginia, is Rear Admiral Tom Richards, Navy retired, former commander of Naval Special Warfare Command, Navy SEAL, who was uh, is the lead character uh, in this story. Um, also is Captain Mike Slattery call, uh, joining us from North Carolina. As I mentioned, Slattery was the uh, is the author of the article, and also on the phone from Central California is former commander Carl Nelson, who was a pilot of one of the Seawolf helicopters on scene that day that helped to uh, both infiltrate the SEALs and then exfiltrate them under fire. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Glad to be here. So, Thank you. 
let me let me turn this over to Captain Slattery. What stirred your interest in writing this article, and then just kind of kick off how the the action began that day? I'm a longtime friend of uh, Tom Richards. He was two classes ahead of me uh, in uh, buds, and uh, kind of a uh, uppity incident at the time, but nevertheless, uh, we became good <laughs> friends. And uh, I remember him coming back uh, from that op later when I returned as well. And uh, he told me about what happened. And we were hearing other things about what happened. And I was really surprised that uh, he didn't get a Navy cross or hire for uh, what he did. And and I think it was a, a, a very... Uh, bad slight uh, on what was uh, accomplished that day in saving uh, his team that uh, was definitely under serious fire. And so uh, I feel that uh, I had to do something, but of course, you know, we had other things and other priorities at the time. So it took me, well, I guess almost almost a half decade, a half uh, century to uh, really put it together and, uh, and write it up. But I've always felt that uh, the bronze star that he was finally awarded uh, was the most valuable bronze star that has ever been awarded to anyone. Tom, why don't you uh, lay out what, uh, what happened that day? Well, uh, to what Mike said just a moment ago, uh, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, of course, I've told that story uh, yeah, any number of times in the course of my career, and uh, uh, you know, Mike clearly felt that it was a uh, under-recognized event. I sort of feel that way as well, but as you know, most guys aren't, aren't going to do anything, and uh, I thank you, Mike, for what you have done. Uh, as Mike says in the article, we started out that day uh, uh preparing to actually return to the United States. Uh, we had started, uh, you know, packing some of our extra radios, batteries, you know, weapons and so on, but you bet your butt we still had our uh, handy-dandy uh, go-to weapons uh, just in case things uh, happened to go to hell in a handbasket. So when uh, Lieutenant Telfer's uh, squad came back uh, needing a radio man, uh, I volunteered because, you know, as it says in the article, I uh, figured somebody's going to have to, uh, you know, drag Grant's ass out of the, uh, out of the rice paddy. Uh, I didn't really understand how uh, prescient I was at the time. So we went back to an area that uh, was alert, you know, knew that uh, something had happened, uh, knew that there was an interest in the area by U.S. forces. So we went back to an area and they were, in fact, expecting us. And we, uh, we landed and started moving towards a, uh, a tree line along a rice dike and took some incredibly uh, heavy fire. As the article mentions, uh, four of us were wounded, the point man, the automatic weapons man, uh, the patrol leader, and myself. And I was fortunate just to have a uh, you know, minor bullet wound through the hand, uh, you know, breaking a few bones and you know, messing things up a little bit. As Carl was able to uh, note from his uh, high-dollar seat uh, a couple hundred feet above us in the air, uh, it was really a pretty bad situation. And Carl saw us uh, start to uh, pull back under, under heavy fire. Uh, Petty Officer Lawrence gave me a lot of assistance in uh, getting Grant off that uh, rice dike initially. 
Uh, I then pulled the other two guys back to a position of relative safety, calling for fire all the time. And as uh, you know, Carl uh, and his uh, and his gunners uh, suppressed a significant amount of fire. We got to uh, the next rice paddy over, which was where Lieutenant Dyer, under heavy fire, came in to uh, to pull us out. And uh, then again, I had to uh, to drag those three uh, wounded guys. You know, two. You know, Lieutenant Tofu was shot in both legs, so he wasn't uh, ambulatory. Uh, one guy was shot in the chest and the groin. Uh, Lieutenant Telfer uh, was the guy shot in both legs, and uh, Petty Officer Futrell was shot through the chest. And uh, they were, you know, they were basically uh, uh, they were basically out of commission. So I dragged those guys over the helo, and the uh, crewman helped me uh, you know, load those guys in. And uh, I basically had one functioning hand that I was either dragging somebody with, or. Uh, Using uh, to uh, to call up to uh, to Carl to uh, ask for uh, some more fire, which he provided on a you know incredible basis. So we uh, we got those guys loaded in, and uh, all during that time, uh, Petty Officers Hedge and Lawrence, the only two individuals who were not wounded, uh, continued to lay down uh, suppressing fire along with what uh, you know Lieutenant Nelson was providing from the air. So we got everybody in, uh, Hedge and Lawrence are the last two guys into the helo, and as we start to lift off, I hear a sound out of the uh, side of the helo, and I look down, and it's you know, Petty Usher Lawrence hanging on to the skid of the helicopter with you know, hands and legs, you know, kind of like you would see in the movies. Well, this wasn't a movie. This was Lawrence hanging on to the skid as we were lifting off the ground. So because I was sitting on the left side of the airplane, I was able to reach down with my unwounded hand, grab Petty Officer Lawrence's uh, load-bearing equipment, or his harness, if you will, and you know, drag him into the airplane. Uh, I have to say that had it not been for Lieutenant Nelson you know, providing that, uh, that cover fire, uh, it didn't matter how far he dragged those guys. You know, all six of us would have either been killed in action or taken prisoner. So, Carl, how about from your point of view, from the, uh, the initial takeoff, how, how were you sorry to do the mission and how did it go down from, uh, from your gunship? I remember that the night before the operation, Lieutenant Telfer came down and, you know, wanted to, to brief me on it. But, of course, uh, our job as the Seawolf was to support the SEALs, and we, we considered those guys our, our mission. We had other missions, but they were the paramount. And... So we wanted to be there for them whenever they needed us. And so I was briefed on the mission and basically not any details other than where it was at and where they wanted to go. And, and so, uh, we went out there the next day and we, uh, they had requested a, uh, a sea lord aircraft, uh, a slick un- unarmed aircraft to carry the, uh, the, the seal platoon out. <clears throat> and, uh, my, me and my wingman, were to support and, and escort them into the zone, into the zone. Well, as we got about almost a thousand meters short of the zone, the first time in, Lieutenant Dyer called me, who was flying the slick, and said, uh, "We're taking fire, and I've got a wounded." Well, we were all taking fire, but uh, he had a wounded, so we turned around and went back. And I was surprised to see that um, that uh, Lieutenant Shelter wanted to go back, but. My job, I'm supporting, and and uh, we took fire as gunships, and we took fire every day. We, to be to be honest, we 
we'd go out looking for trouble every day. We were trying to, we had a very active area of operations AO and we, uh, we were out there all the time finding out where the hostels were. Uh, so then I see Tom show up and, and he's, he's the sixth guy and we're going back. So, okay. And uh, on our, on our way back in my wingman, Lieutenant Gatley, uh, his aircraft went down. I thought he was shot down. I didn't only, I didn't see it cause he was trailing me, but he was missing. He wasn't answering the radio. Well, Lieutenant Dyer was on a short approach, made it into the LZ. We covered the exit in a, in a, in a circular pattern about 80 to 90 feet while the seals got out of the slick and got into what was our tactic. And then we escorted Lieutenant Dyer out of the LZ uh, landing zone out to a safe area. And then I, by the time I got back, Tom was calling for, calling for a strike. So even though squadron policy was that we not fly single gunships ever, we only fly in a fire team so we could cover each other properly. Um, I put a single ship strike in and, and as I broke off the target, uh, Tom was asking me what I saw above the dike, just above them. And I saw people moving and my door gunner on the right side, uh, petty officer, uh, Mike Dobson, uh, with an M60 put in withering fire. He was an excellent door gunner. My other door gunner was Tom Clavon. And so I could see Tom down below us, much like that picture, only not that close. We were getting about, I'm going to guess 80 feet. And we were literally doing pedal turns over the top of Zulu platoon. Trying, I was trying to get both door guns out at the same time. My co-pilot, Lieutenant Earl Schott, was, was operating the minigun. And then, and it didn't surprise me, as I saw and looked down, I could see, uh, and I could tell it was Tom. Tom, I knew it was you, even though I didn't see your, your, your name tag. I, the size of your Hulk, I knew it was you. And uh, he was dragging people across, across dikes in, in a southwesterly direction to get them clear of the kill zone. And, uh, he, we called for, uh, for an extraction and, uh, and I knew he would. And we got Dyer, Dyer had a, uh, got a, you know, came in a little bit fast, hot as we say. And, uh, I, at that time, I, I didn't know how bad it was going to be if Tom was going to be able to drag everybody over. And I honestly, it was in my mind that I might need to land. And we might need to get our crew helping Tom get those guys. It was a bad situation. Uh, but Tom got him in. Uh, we cleared the LZ, escorted them out. And believe it or not, my wingman miraculously, magically joined up on me as we were headed back to Solid Anchor to get the, uh, the SEALs medical attention. And I'll say without question, I, I participated with uh, guys like Mike Horse and Dick Couch and John Sandoz and of course Tom and Grant and and I think the I think the other I can't remember that one SEAL team leader's uh, name I think it was Ward Chris Ward I think and uh, I've seen lots of SEAL ops never seen anything like that nothing like that 
And since that was Zulu's last patrol, those guys were medevaced. I heard about them and their condition. I followed them before they went back to the States, but I never heard a resolution of Tom's award, although I expected it would be a major award. And I'm like you, Mike. I think it was uh, Navy Cross minimum, maybe higher. I mean, amazing. And uh, I was shocked when I heard Bronze Star. And although I did see Tom back in and, and the West Coast about a year later, we really didn't talk about it, Tom. We talked about other stuff. Admiral Richards, this was as... Carl just said this was the end of Zulu's tour. You'd certainly seen some stuff before this, and not to have you rank firefights, but what were you thinking at the time? Did training just kick in, or you're like, oh, we really stepped in at this time? What 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 went through your mind during this, this kinetic situation? Well, as we mentioned earlier, this was at the end of our uh, end of our rotation, and uh, our squad had actually uh, packed up a certain amount of our gear. So we'd had, uh, you know, about 30, uh, 30 operations under our belt by this time. Uh, we'd been shot at and missed on any number of occasions. Uh, so, uh, I won't say I was used to it, uh, but I was prepared for, uh, for crappy situations. So when things went to hell in a handbasket, uh, to your point about training, that's exactly what kicked in. Uh, I wasn't thinking about bullets flying. Uh, I wasn't thinking about the wound in my hand. I was thinking about the guys. You know, what do I, what do I have to do next to get our uh, get our butts out of this uh, out of this situation? And I uh, I, I basically just uh, you know cranked in and did it. So did Lawrence. So did Hedge. And so did the other guys. Uh, and so and that's all those all that training. All those standard operating procedures, or SOPs as we call them, all that uh, kicked in for uh, for everybody, uh, and uh, truly that's uh, why we're alive today. I mentioned that uh, the other guys were, you know, two of the other guys were lung shot, and Grant was shot in uh, in, in both legs. Uh, uh, I've got a, I am fortunate to be able to provide a little bit of a humorous side to uh, uh, to my injury. Uh, that is. Uh, when uh, when I got shot in the hand, I was you know, shot right through my uh, pistol grip of my machine gun, and I described the feeling as putting your hand on a blacksmith's anvil and having Hulk Hogan swing a sledgehammer and hit your hand. Uh, so after after that after that initial uh, jolt, as we say, uh, I looked down at my hand and I said, "God damn." Uh, and of course, my hand is, uh, you know, looking like some raw hamburger at the time. But I looked down and I, I saw what I thought was the bullet sticking out of the back of my hand. And now we've all seen John Wayne and Clint Eastwood just reach down and grab that bullet or that broken arrow in their teeth and, you know, pull it out of their wound, their shoulder or their arm or whatever it was. So I said, hey, I can do that. So I looked down and I, I grabbed the bullet between, uh, between my teeth and I gave a good hard yank. The only problem is that was one of the bones ah. in my right hand. <laughs> and what was worse, what was worse is the bone was still attached. Oh. <laughs> and I want to tell you that that is my definition of pain for the last 50 years. 
It hurt so bad. When I when I pulled on that bone, I think it pulled on all the tendons in my body, and my toes curled. Ah. Uh, I, I, I have had, I have, I've had women tell me, uh, that perhaps that sounds like it might've been a little bit worse than childbirth. I, I, I don't know, but, uh, it was incredibly painful. So after that stupid move, I looked down at my hand, I said, well, obviously that's something that can wait. And I proceeded you know, to, uh, to drag the guys off the, uh, off the rice dike, but man, you know, to uh, just to, you know, I should have known better, you know, Clint Eastwood and John Wayne. It was the movies. I was living in real life, and it was a whole lot different. Admiral, this is Bill. I got two questions for you. Uh, so the first question is, uh, you know, you guys are going in. It's a, it's kind of a hot LZ as you're inserting because of the fire that had just been taken by the squad in a helicopter, you know, an hour before or so, uh, and you're going in with six guys. So your squad is just six seals. Was that a fairly standard combat, um, you know, package? Just you know, six, not a full platoon, but a a, a squad of seals. Absolutely, uh, you know, uh, Lieutenant Telfer and I operated, uh, you know, pretty much independently most of the times. Uh, the platoon at that point in time was. 14 people, so I normally had six or seven on most of my ops. Uh, Grant had the same thing. Uh, that was uh, that was not an unusually low number. Uh, I do have to say, as Carl mentioned, uh, Lieutenant Telford talked to uh, Carl the uh, the evening before. Because we were in the we were starting to stand down, and I had made the decision, and Grant had gone along with it uh, to uh, to pack up some of the gear, uh, and I was not part of the mission. I was not part of any of the uh, the planning process. So when uh, Lieutenant Telfer lost his uh, uh, radio man, I was uh, I was stepping into a uh, uh, completely unknown situation, and uh, I was going to do the best I could to support that squad. Gotcha. Uh, second question is. Uh, so from the time of insertion, so this this just happened really quickly. So you guys are inserting the two HAL-3 helicopters are taking you in. One, one is a gunship and one is the slick, as Carl just said. You get off the helicopter, you're under fire really quickly. Carl mentioned that you know by the time he had sort of hovered around and turned around, he's already hearing for the extraction call. Um, and then from the from that time, to when you guys get on the helicopter, as you said, the petty officer is holding on to the skid and being pulled up like the movie. What's the total time on the ground that you spent in this um, in, in this event? Well, it felt like about three hours, but uh, truth be told, it was no more than uh, no more than ten minutes because as soon as as soon as we got off the uh, the slick and started moving towards that tree line, we started taking fire, and uh, within a couple of minutes. Telfer, Futrell, and Roland were all uh, were all hit, and we were uh, we were starting to extract ourselves out of there. Uh, the longest part of that operation was uh, waiting for the uh, waiting for the slick to come in, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, but we were uh, we were trying to provide fire. Uh, Lieutenant Nelson was uh, laying down uh, his air support, and uh, you, know, you know Lieutenant Dyer uh, came into a uh, came into a hot LZ to to get us out of there. So it it was a very very short duration. Uh, you know we hadn't gone thirty or forty meters up that other uh, other uh, rice dike before we started uh, getting that uh, withering fire and uh, found ourselves in that you know basically we're in a kill zone. Three other of your teammates uh, were wounded that day. Uh, how did they turn out when they got back to the MASH unit or the helicopter base there, emergency surgery or whatever happened to them medically? It was absolutely amazing. 
both Petty Officers Futrell and Roland uh, were, you know, shot through the lungs. Each of the bullets went through and through and did not hit any bone. So as a result, the uh, the heat of the round almost, uh, if you will, cauterized the wound. Uh, they didn't have, uh, I don't believe they either had collap- collapsed lungs, but long story short, both of them re- were returned to, uh, to full duty. We were all incredibly fortunate that day. And uh, Lieutenant Telfer, as I mentioned, was shot in both legs. Well, that was actually one bullet. The bullet went in one leg, uh, below the knee, went up through his, uh, went up to his thigh and somehow deflected into his, uh, into his other leg. Uh, but, you know, one bullet got both legs and, uh, you know, well, I'll say that Grant was never a real fast runner. He was faster than me, but he was still able to, uh, uh still able to, uh, you know, to, to run and, uh, return to full duty as well. So, as, as bad as it seemed in the uh, in the rice paddy with uh, those guys uh, shot in the chest, legs, and uh, and groin, you know, we were uh, we were all exceptionally fortunate, and you know, uh, now we're able to get uh, get together and uh, you know swap some lies about a, a real bad day at Black Rock. From your perspective, we've we've had a couple articles in both proceedings and naval history in the last two years about the Sea Wolves, about HAL three. Uh, the special operations uh, helicopter unit that that did so much support to the SEALs down in the Mekong Delta area. Um, just give us your perspective on on operating with Carl and his his uh, band of brothers. <laughs> well, uh, I don't want it to sound too much like a uh, like a love fest, but uh, uh, Mike uh, Mike Slatter used that quote by uh, uh, by Barry Enoch in his uh, in his article. That's how every SEAL felt about the Sea Wolves. If you needed help uh, uh, for any uh, for any operation, we would always turn to the uh, uh, to the Sea Wolves. Frequently, we couldn't get Army helicopter support, so we either used Sea Sea Wolves and Sea Lords uh, for our operational support. In some cases, we might patrol directly out from the uh, uh, from the base where we were. We'd use sampans, uh, but if we needed cover. Uh, it was the uh, it was the Sea Wolves. We had uh, we had a uh, a POW recovery op that we uh, conducted uh, during our tour uh, with uh, Lieutenant Dick Couch as the as the uh, mission commander, and it was the uh, the uh, the Sea Lords, the Slicks, as Carl has mentioned, who provided the uh, provided our our way in and out, and we we actually were able to recover. 23 Vietnamese uh, soldiers from that uh, from that VC POW camp. The reason we had actually conducted the operation was because of intelligence we had that there were a couple of American POWs at that camp, and we got there to find that we had missed the Americans by three days. In the June 2019 issue of Naval History, I would uh, recommend the article called I Am a Sailor and a Sea Wolf, which talks a lot about what HAL 3 the Sea Wolves of Helicopter Attack Squadron 3, uh, their operations in Vietnam. And then uh, you just mentioned the quote by uh, SEAL Chief Gunner's mate uh, Barry Enoch, who said, uh, many a SEAL owes his life to the Sea Wolves. We developed friendships that are still alive today. They were always there for us when we were down in the mud and darkness, the night illuminated with red and green tracers, VC behind every shadow. Could not be more true. One of the one of the greatest things was that in many cases 
the uh, sea wolves were located on the uh, on the same installation. Uh, so we had great mission planning opportunities. Uh, we were able to work closely with the sea lords and sea wolves, and we really developed some uh, some SOPs. And the and the, uh, the the sea wolves had a very good understanding of of. of how we the seals operated, uh, what we would expect from them. Uh, so it was it was a very uh, a very close and uh, uh, profitable working relationship. I want to go back now to uh, Captain Slattery because uh, you know the impetus for writing this article you said started kind of fifty years ago when you first heard this story and heard that Admiral Richards' um, award was downgraded from a silver star to a bronze star. Uh, so if you would wrap into the story a little bit about um, the recognition that ended up being denied, what the award was put in for originally, and, and at what level it got uh, downgraded. The uh, downgrade of Tom's Silver Star, originally uh, submitted by uh, Dead Goff, the immediate uh, uh, superior in command uh, of uh, Telfer and also uh, of uh, Dick Couch's uh, Whiskey Baton, got for three reasons, I think. Basically, the factors were the, the summary of action write-up, the timing from the big picture perspective, and the AV4V's attitude towards the operation itself. To go a little more detail with uh, the summary of action write-up, it was right, written, and this is the vehicle for essentially uh, award recommendations. And it was a low-key write-up summarizing the actions. Uh, nevertheless, at the end of it, it did say that uh, without Tom's conspicuous gallantry and uh, his uh, cool perseverance, uh, it's doubtful that uh, the patrol could have survived. Uh, that pretty much puts it into uh, extraordinary heroism, uh, or at least heroism at the, at the minimum. And uh, the problem was, uh, as it got uh, up through the chain of command, when it got to uh, Comnat 4V, uh, it was downgraded from a silver star to a bronze star. And extraordinary heroism, uh, there's, there's a, a, a box for both of them, and it was checked no. And I don't know what uh, uh, would qualify as extraordinary heroism, other than somebody going in and uh, pulling out not just one of his teammates, but three, uh, and uh, essentially taking over the uh, the patrol that uh, was in other chaos, that's uh, uh, kind of beyond me as to uh, what uh, they consider to be extraordinary heroes. The next was the timing from the big picture perspective. Nixon, President Nixon, had directed General Abrams to reduce his casualties, uh, and this was following uh, the uh, battle at Al-Shah Valley uh, that the uh, troops called uh, uh, the Battle of Hamburger Hill. And that was done in May of 69. And uh, so the pressure was right from the beginning, six months after uh, Nixon took, uh, took the presidency. And uh, there was a uh, re-emphasize of that uh, following the Cambodian incursion. In fact, before he, uh, Abrams went in to Cambodia, Nixon essentially stressed reduced casualties. And this was all uh, as part of Vietnamization strategy 
and the unilateral withdrawal of first 25,000 troops, combat troops, and then 150 combat troops. So there was a great deal of pressure uh, on uh, MACV and the, the subordinate commanders, which included NAV4Vs. And their attitude towards the op was to feel the pressure of reducing casualties. And when casualties uh, were uh, uh, inflicted on Americans, it was very unwelcome. And so the operation, anyway, was viewed uh, by the headshed as a very uh, low priority, unnecessary, and ill-conceived. And they blamed the officers based on this bureaucratic political influence that essentially overtook whatever Tom had done in the, or, or the uh, Seawolves in the actual operation and downgraded the uh, Silver Star. Now, Dick Couch, the Whiskey Batoon commander, uh, had essentially told Telfer not to go back in, that it was a bad idea and there was no in- intel. And even though Tom advised against the op, all of this was likely unknown. And so those three factors, from what I can do as my analysis and research, uh, essentially led me to the conclusion that uh, those were the primary reasons why uh, the award was downgraded, when in, in my view it should have been upgraded, hands down. And in the perfect world, uh, with perfect timing, uh, if you look at previous awards, uh, with, uh, somebody taking over, uh, and uh, essentially pulling their people out, uh, or even not even doing that, uh, Barry Enoch, what he did, and he ended up with a Navy cross, and as well as, uh, uh, bosun mate first class, uh, Williams, uh, which was in, uh, one of the articles in, in the April issue, uh, he essentially uh, was shooting from uh, PBR, uh, and he got the Medal of Honor. So uh, it, it just didn't compute, and I felt obligated for the longest time uh, to do something about it, and I had the opportunity, and I did it. And I talked to a lot of seals and a lot of sea wolves, and uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, something had to be done uh, to rectify this real injustice in my view. The article is called Conspicuous Gallantry Under Fire. It's in the April issue of Naval History Magazine, available on our website. Go to www.usni.org slash history, and you will find it there. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next time.